Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to the Surviving Society Spotlight series. I'm Shanice McBean and today I'm with a very good friend and comrade of mine, Avia. Hey, I'm Avia Day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are Crossroads Women's Centre and we are actually like massively excited because we are currently sat with Selma James, who is an activist and writer who's deeply inspired both of us in lots of different ways. And t- today we're actually going to be talking about Selma's latest collection of writing, which is called Our Time Is Now, Sex, Race, Class and Caring for People and Planet. Selma, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'm Selma James and I work with the Global Women's Strike and for my sins I began the Wages for Housework campaign in March 1972 which morphed into the Global Women's Strike in the year 2000 and we are demanding a care income for all who care for people and planet and that's for every gender and we feel that begins to turn the tables on what the society is for and about. First of all, it's for the reproduction of the human race and for our happiness and survival and satisfaction and relationships, humane relationships, where we care about ourselves and we care about the natural world and we care about all who live, all who are survival and we care about against uh, what is now happening to the climate which is absolutely destructive of all life so we work on an international level making clear that the caring work which women do overwhelmingly is the most important work in society and must be supported by everything that the society is doing what it produces and how it produces ensuring that we are internationally for life and for the survival of the planet as well as for the human race. So that's how we try to organize. <laughs> Thank you so much, Summer. And then we've also got Sarah here. So Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, I'm Sarah Calloway. I'm from Women of Color in the Global Women's Strike and we've obviously we're part of the global women's strike and we focus on the particular work that women of color do internationally particularly in the global south where women's workload is horrendous and the whole society is depending on women's work and mother's work for food for water for health care the basics of life and yet that's barely counted anywhere not in academia and often not in the movement so that is a lot of the work we do and we also campaign on the whole issue of justice work and that's the work that often women of color have to do when our children our loved ones are under attack expelled from school stopped and searched all that we call justice work and it's beginning to be recognized but it's been a, a really a long a long road to get that on the agenda and we're part of the kill the bill coalition 
we work with some global south climate justice groups who are focusing on people of color in the global south. Recently, we've been very much supporting the Indian farmer strike and trying to get visibility for that movement here, which is really important. And also bringing to light the fact that in India, there's a massive movement for wages for housework, is. which is just extraordinary. I mean, the women are just on it. And the other thing we are involved in is support for Haiti. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is obviously they were the first to end slavery, but are very much neglected. And we try to ask the movement to really pay attention to and support the Haitian people. And we also do a lot of work with immigrants and asylum seekers. And Crystal has just shown you the latest work we did up from destitution. So we do a lot of work around detention, asylum, immigration. And there are a number of organizations in the campaign because we are a number of sectors coming together independently but also mutually supportive. The English Collective of Prostitutes here, us pros in the United States, queer strike in a number of countries and we do that work for Haiti is very important to us because it's a, it's a crucial part of our anti-racist work that we support the people who ended slavery and began the process of the end of slavery and have been punished ever since for their revolutionary impertinence. And that's the impertinence we want, we need, and we do all we can to support. Amen. Too right. <laughs> Too right. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, Selma's, uh, Selma has been central in really making us focus on Haiti and you know also draw on you know the work of you know clr james black jacobins so that's it's that's been so crucial to women of color's work you know that there's so, we've been so deprived of the information and you know we've been very lucky and and privileged you know to be able to draw on your experience it's helped us enormously yeah because we have to remember that the haitian former slaves beat the hell out of Napoleon. Absolutely, and that's what's so scary about that story, right? It says that actually the underdogs can fundamentally change a system. Yeah. That wasn't just surface change. That's right. That was revolution, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Real the right revolution, conditions. that's it. Exactly. You mentioned Kill the Bill. That's the movement to end the police crime and sentencing bill, which mean Shanice are also involved in the coalition. Worth mentioning that. For anyone that doesn't know, it's a bill that's proposed that is hitting many different communities, marginalised communities, Gypsy Roman Traveller community, black community, through Stop and Search, as well as uh, protest and a whole host of other authoritarian measures and police powers are being proposed in it. So extremely important that we take every opportunity to resist it. Just want to give a bit of context. So obviously this is a really timely conversation to be having with you. Um, I feel like it's always timely to have political conversations under capitalism, but maybe more so given global pandemic. And I think the pandemic, you know, we've been talking about this a lot, me and Shanice has really thrown up a lot of central questions about care, care for people and, and planet and something that you discuss in the book as well. Um, I think one of the things that's quite interesting about the pandemic is it's kind of shone a light on work that is usually really invisible. 
so like paid work such as in hospitals and care homes but also the work that women are doing largely women are doing at home for free suddenly has become really obvious during this pandemic and women have been relied upon to take up new caring responsibilities um, during COVID-19 and you know entire families you know to look after sick people um, and we've seen care workers that have been disproportionately black and brown many of them women at the centre of both the economy systems of care you know it's kind of revealed for the first time just how important how unrecognised I think the labour of women and racialised people are in the running of capitalism. Well I think it's very important that we stress this because it is central to the position of women in the society generally. Mm. Women are the poorer sex, women are the caring sex, women work do two-thirds of the world's work and most of it is unwaged so that you do the work but you don't have any power in your hand as a result of it and you find yourself dependent and then there is the situation where domestic violence is widespread the police do little or nothing about it in this country right now rape is decriminalized fundamentally and everybody agrees with that and yet they're passing a police bill which will give police more power but not against rapists mm. the 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 decriminalization will remain but the power of the police will increase against our protests. Yeah, and I think just on that as well, there was a report that was done recently that showed that police who are perpetrators are actually less likely to be prosecuted than the general public. Mm -hmm. Their wives are spilling the beans about what happens at home, the violence, and they cannot get the police to get violent partners prosecuted, some of whom are police. That's what makes the bill, uh, the bill that we want to kill so urgent mm -hmm. to be killed because there is a, a lot of women who now understand whether they are women of colour or whether they are not women of colour, whether they are white women, that that bill is not going to help them, it's going to harm them, it's standing against all of us. So there's a great majority of people who are against that bill which is being imposed yeah. upon us. So just on this question of kind of gendered violence and violence against women, I know when you first kind of uh, were thinking about the idea of wages for housework, part of it was the idea that that connection to a man's wage traps a woman in what can be quite violent situations. So can you take us right back to what wages for housework is? and kind of why you connected that to the question of women's liberation? Well, we had to find out as a women's movement in the early 1970s, at least some of us did, that we had to find out our relationship to a class society, our relationship to racism, our relationship to disability, our relationship to um, male violence, and our relationship to low pay. We had a big relationship to low pay, which I think is even bigger now than before. And it seemed to us that the basic weakness of women was that we were doing of the work of reproducing the whole human race, including the whole labor force and the bosses too. We were not getting any social power as a result. People said, what do you, people asked, what do you do? And we said, we do nothing, we're housewives. 
That's what was going on in 1950, 60, and even in 70. It began to change as a result of women making demands of all kinds. And we felt that these demands, each of them was justified, not to be able to run for office, you know, to be able to do the jobs that are higher paid that men were exclusively doing, to be able to have the power to refuse the racism that was imposed on our children, you know, to have the power in the society that our work made us deserve, that we had earned by the work that we were doing, but that work was not being acknowledged and that work did not give us the social power of money. And we felt increasingly that was our point of weakness and while we were struggling for many things, we were struggling for the money to get out of violent relationships, to have an independent view, to go out to work if we wanted to, but to have a little money so that we were not desperate when we went to employees, employers and asked for jobs. And from that, the whole society began to see itself. We went to the UN, we asked them what we must have account of the work that women are doing. And from that came the figure that women do two thirds of the world's work for 5% of the income. That was an ILO figure that we got by our international work at the UN. We were not many and we were not rich, but we were determined. And we saw that this relationship, this relationship of poverty that women had everywhere in the world was based on the housework, the caring work that we all were doing again everywhere in the world. So women may be washing clothes by the side of the river and some other women had a machine, but it was their job to do the laundry. And that's what could unite us across national boundaries, demanding the reparations for the unwaged work that all of us were doing. Yeah, and I think that the question of kind of like wageless or unwaged workers and like how you focused on those women was like at its root, about a care for the working class. As I guess the the way in which some of the feminist movement went meant that some women did get more money as part of the ruling class. And I guess the demand for wages for housework was very much about thinking about the role of a section of the working class and how you can uplift the working class. Well, it was very important for us to say that housewives were part of the working class. Mm. You can't be outside of the outside of the working class if you're doing all this work whether or not you have wages you know there is also a wonderful story in Marx who talks about when slavery was abolished in the United States that is when unwaged work was abolished and people got money for their work that the agitation for the eight-hour day this was 1800 mm. something uh, traveled with seven league boots across, across the American continent. In other words, the waged worker was stronger once the unwaged worker had won a wage. Mm. And that is our principle in relation to wages for housework. We don't undermine the waged worker. 
we strengthen the hand of the waged worker, especially the woman waged worker who is doing zero hour contracts, who's living on this universal, what is the name credit. of it? Universal credit. Yeah. Universe, all of this nonsense where we have to beg for money in spite of the fact that there would be no society except for the work that we were doing. And we do a lot, as Sarah has said, we do a lot of protecting. You know, you can be a mother, goodish mother, badish mother, but one thing are, you are protecting your children. You are the one who marches into school and say, don't you touch my child again, or don't you put him in a something school. We want the, our children to be treated properly, and women have always fought for our children, and now we find that they are taking our children from us and saying that poverty, confusing poverty with neglect and saying we neglect our children when we can't feed them mm -hmm. and take the children into care, take the children and put them in foster care and sometimes put them out for adoption. This is a big struggle which is going on and thousands of women have become increasingly involved in that movement against children being taken. And black children are 10 times more likely to be taken into care. And they also threaten like, the mothers, asylum, mothers who are asylum seekers, you know, that this, the home office or the local council, for example, one woman was thrown out of housing and they threatened to take her kids. So it's happening all the time. And, you know, mothers have been organizing and speaking out about that it's like terror and it's a lifelong trauma to the child. I mean, to be taken from your mom is the most horrific thing that can happen. I mean, yeah, it, hap it actually happened to me when I was a kid. Due to racism as well. So like, mm, both my parents are a mixed race and they're, they're utter and I've got the files and it's utter utterly disgusting. I was at the Whittington Hospital and I was taken into care for the first year and a half and I was very lucky to be returned because when newborn babies often don't get returned. Mm -hmm. It's a trauma that stays forever really like there's no two ways about it and, one, and I actually do think that you know we talk about a lot about prison abolition and policing but we don't always connect that with these other kinds of castle systems like social services that are mm -hmm. Punitive in a way that I actually think is, you know, I would go to prison for for weeks or months, but like to take away my child and tell me that I could never see them again would be the worst punishment that you could ever really experience. But we don't always connect the dots of that kind of what the state actually does to people in terms of that horrific, traumatizing punishment. But there's a way that we have to. It's just urgent yeah. now. You yeah. know, this is our moment when we have to really put all the pieces together. And like in Kill the Bill, you know, the yeah. Kill the Bill campaign, you know, why not take up this issue of mothers being separated from children? Because yeah. often the police, they bring in the police mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. And I know that the traveler families, it's been happening to traveler families for years. So this is our moment to really get it together and bring all these things to the forefront. Yeah, and you can see a very similar process that happens with the way single moms are denigrated in society and that's used that's as a way right. to justify essentially violence yeah. in the care system against women and against children. You see that in exactly the same way against black youth, you know, this idea of the gang or black culture and how that justifies like 
the siege of police in our communities, essentially, and the way they use the same kind of tropes against the Gypsy Roma traveller community, you know, these violent people who are unruly and cause disorder, and then that's used to justify seizing their homes and allowing a mental health crisis to rip through their community. And there's definitely that connection there between how these, these tropes, these stereotypes are used to justify and normalise violence against our communities. At the same time, women, some women are moving up. Mm. And they are not moving up on our behalf. They're moving up to give the men's line to us out of the, the, the head of the police in London. Cressida Dick. The Home Secretary who succeeds in deporting a lot of people who have a right to be here. Mm. Another woman, Priti Patel. You know, it is horrendous that many of the questions that we are discussing are not being addressed or even considered or spoken about by women who have got positions in government and management because we built a movement. Mm. And it's not only the women's movement of which this is true. Every working class movement and all of the movements really are working class in composition. You know, the, the, the lesbian and gay movement, the, the uh, movement of sex workers, the movements of single mothers for welfare, you know, the movement of people with disabilities, all of these have produced people in the establishment who claim to represent us but are representing the establishment to us. Mm. And that is a problem that the movements, all of the movements have to address. We want our autonomy as different sectors. We need it. We need to be able to express exactly how our exploitation is expressed and how our struggle against it is also being carried out. And at the same time, we want our movement to be represented by our struggle rather than by those in authority that the media assumes is our leadership giving us the line that we've been opposing so do you think that the consensus on that is being eroded in the sense that now that we've had margaret thatcher and theresa may and pretty patel and saji javed and all these black people and women and gay people and girl boss feminism yeah now we've had this maybe it's a lot easier for people to see that diversity in the upper echelons of society right. doesn't actually change the system representation you, representation politics yeah representation politics can't save us so do, would you would you say that that consensus is kind of like being eroded now i think it's been eroded i think it's in some ways beginning to explode in some ways, women are, I mean, this movement against children being taken uh, from working class families, some are black, some are brown, and the majority is white still. And that movement is beginning to express itself. Women are coming out, women are, we have a picket of the family court once a month, a support not separation, an organization based at the center, a number of organizations that have come together. And that picket is um, well attended and well known. 
and the point of view of women is being expressed in spite of the women upstairs and the men upstairs. It, it is getting through and of course we have social media mm. Mm. and people are conveying what they're doing and what they think in ways that was never open to, uh, were never open to us as working class people. And those views and that experience and that struggle are being expressed in another way. And I think people are coming together on the basis of their autonomy. That is, I want my point of view expressed as a woman or as a black woman or as a woman with disabilities. Mm -hmm. But I also want the people who are fighting the same people as I am I want to work with them on the basis of they accept my case and I will accept theirs. And there's a woman from the National Welfare Rights Union in the US, she said, she says, I want to work with people who may not look like me, but they think like me and they act like me. Yeah. And I think that that is a clarity you know, which we had a long time coming to, but we have it now. <laughs> um, Avia, like, yeah. obviously we've both been, like, really involved in the Kill the Bill movement and, yeah. like, building that coalition. And if you don't mind me blowing your trumpet, you were quite instrumental to, like, bringing all these different groups together. So I wondered if you could talk about the kind of solidarity that Selma is talking about and how that's kind of emerged in Kill the Bill. I mean, it's interesting, really, because um, the bill is as much terrifying as it is an opportunity because the fact that Pretty Patel seems so determined in one bill to target all of the groups that she most despises in society has created potentially the conditions for a very, um, a very powerful movement based on solidarity with groups that ordinarily haven't really worked with each other working together and so like you know we've got sex workers working with the gypsy roma traveler community working with the black community um working with migrants many of whom have never organized together and initially you know back in march april when this movement started didn't necessarily know an awful lot about each other's struggles and very quickly through organizing together through being on the streets through attending like you know workshops in parks and are very quickly becoming, um, you know, understanding what is going on for each other and actually understanding the overlaps in the way in which they're all treated by the police or we're all treated by the police. It's a terrifying bill, but I also, you know, if I can be arrogant enough to say, I kind of feel like maybe Pretty Patel has massively underestimated our power with this one and thought that she could really get away with just efficiently sweeping the board with all of these groups and didn't and really underestimated our power to actually organise based on solidarity. So. I feel, you know, cautiously optimistic, to be honest, <laughs> I yeah. would say. And I know, like, kind of before we started the interview, we were talking about the way in which a lot of politics has become quite competitive and how, like, different groups who are marginalised and oppressed and different sectors, as you call them in the book, Selma, I guess before this kill the bill moment, there was often a lot of competition, blacks versus Asians, women versus men, Jews versus Muslims. And I feel that this really is a moment for us to break through, I guess what is quite a capitalistic impulse to compete 
with each other for crumbs as opposed to kind of visioning what a future of plenty might look like. Do you know what I mean? Scarcity. Yeah. I think that the experience in the last years and the experience that is now really unavoidable to face it now, it has taught people a lot. And I think people are regrouping and working out how to do it and what to do next. I don't think that, you know, once they've had floods in Germany and Holland and Belgium and China, you know, and in other countries and in the north of England, um, that, you know, we are on the verge of catastrophe and people are really terrified i certainly am i believe that they don't they are pathologically greedy that is a definition of capitalism which works very well mm. it does absolutely describe their attitude to the environment the environment right now they have fires that are burning down their mansions on the west of the United States and they still cannot get it together to cut down on the emissions, to reorganize society, to, um, to give other people work. They need work. There's plenty of work to be done to save the world, to save the environment, to change the poisoning of the soil, to save the animals, to really recreate the world as it needs to be recreated and cared for by women, by men, by every gender. They can't do it. We have to do it for them. Our movement has to be built to do that. And one of the first things that has to happen is that we have to work on the assumption that we are one movement internationally and support each other in the struggle. I don't mean send that empty solidarity. It doesn't change a lot. It's nice to have solidarity, but it really doesn't pay the rent, if you know what I mean. Mm. And I think we need to organize on an international level, which is why we have done the work supporting the strike in India. Millions of people are on strike. Women are often leading you know, the initiatives of the strike. They're farm workers, farmers, all kinds of people using the opportunity also of the strike, garment workers, sweatshop workers, etc. Millions of people are involved. We don't hear a lot about it, but what they are doing is fighting against the takeover of all land by the multinationals, which means they will have the power they will have our food sovereignty in their hands. We don't want that. We don't want them in charge of our soil. We don't want them in charge of our medicines. We don't want them in charge of our lives. And that we need an international movement and open our minds to the way other people are struggling to find out how we can relate to it and how it it can be used where we are. That is. I mean, the strike really works at that and tries to find out about the women in Thailand who are, in fact, reclaiming the soil, renovating, rejuvenating the soil, and remaking 
the society and then defending it against the multinationals who again want the soil from them because they've just rejuvenated it. You know, that's what's happening and that's our struggle. It's not somebody we just support. It is what we are doing to save the planet as on an international level. I, I think we have to I'm very interested in networks as opposed to these organizations which which kind of lock you into the prominent individual who may not have your interest at heart at all, mm -hmm. but your network working together in a steady way and extending your network and connecting, seeing where you connect with others. I think that's an important part of the way we are organizing now to be effective. We use that a lot at the center, but we are we have a principle, and that is we are accountable. We just don't go off and do our thing and go for our thing to the neglect of others. We are mutually accountable. We are helping ourselves, but in a collective way. We call it collective self-help, and that's an important part of how we function and how we maintain ourselves. There's no burnout here. We have too much work to take time out for burnout. We're, we're busy. <laughs> we have a lot of people who are ready to be active, young people, and to ready to be active and to fit into and to extend to their friends what it is they're doing and clarifying their own minds and getting into touch with, well, you know, it's wonderful when there's a teenager in Turkey who relates to us regularly. She, you know, there, there's all kinds of connections that we have with various countries. We, we were connected with the woman in Peru, the Peruvian domestic worker who just got the election of a working class man to be head of government when the right wing, corrupt right wing, wanted to steal the election. They just won and we had a lovely meeting with her in celebration. Now we're going to get down to work. No celebration. We've got to find out what should be doing next and where the domestic workers may be going. And I think they took to the streets, was it 43, 45 days, 43 days on the streets? And this was never hardly, I think it wasn't even reported in the paper. No. But they did this fantastic thing and, and got their man in office. And they, they camped outside the Electoral Council. That's right. Camped for 45 days. They, they were there. You can't steal it. You must, you must give it to us. We want it. There they were, the women, the men. Amazing. And that's, happened. that's our movement. 100%. And we have, to, we have to hold the wins, you know. We have 100%. to keep them because, you know, next week it might be a lot more difficult and we have to remember yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big believer of that. What Selma was saying about burnout, because we are working on many fronts and accountable to each other, if you have a knockback, somebody else is just winning something yeah. or two people have just won something. Yeah. So you're constantly renewed and re, you know regenerated. And yes, filling up the tank. We have to point out, since you asked me about wages for housework, there is a law in the US Congress, which has been passed and the checks have gone out, it's called the CTC, Child Tax Credit. Every child under a particular uh, level of um, 
income, which is not bad, you know, 40, 50,000, I can't remember exactly, gets money every month for every child, okay? And that's not going to abolish poverty because poverty in the U.S. is grinding, but it's going to help a lot of people out of poverty and we want it extended and we want to be sure that it's paid to the mother because only if it's paid to the mother will we be sure that the children are eating. Yeah. In every society, they have found that this is true. They can't label any racism on us. We are feeders of children internationally. And um, that we want that money to made, be made permanent and we want that money to be extended because it doesn't reach all the poor people. There are millions of poor people still and we want every single person. We do not need billionaires. It is not a necessity of the society. All they can do is go and look at the moon. Now, that's what they do with their money. Children are without food and they're out there on, they're having an experience, excuse me. You know, we have to make clear that this is unacceptable, immoral and murderous in fact, because people are dying of starvation and they're burning money up in these, in these contraptions. We have to establish our principles and make it clear that our principles are the humane principles which working class people have always fought for. We have always fought to feed our children and to feed children elsewhere who didn't have money. You know, I know this from when I was small. You know, we share what we have. We're selfish, we're mean, yes, all of that. But we really, we women, we are the ones who try to feed the world yeah. and an income to us is an income to care. Now I want to make it clear, I don't think you can pay for care. Care is something you give yourself. You pay attention to the people who need your help. You are nourished by what you give but you can make it possible for people to care mm. to the degree that it is needed by an income to them so they're not scrounging around for a little money to be able to feed the kids they're trying to care for or the granny who needs their help or the neighbor down the road who's been ill or the guy who just got out of prison. We try to help each other and we must demand that we have the money to be helpful to each other. I want to come back on that point specifically around the because the wages for housework and now that the care income, which you spoke a little bit about before. And I guess like since the 1970s with the wages for housework campaign, it seems that, you know, when, you know, a lot of that was about actually, you know, getting uh, money for, for work that wasn't waged. We're kind of now in a situation where, you know, there's a massive care industry where people are getting paid a, terrible wage for that kind of work um and i guess it's you know what what's quite interesting to me about that is that you know we've got people a lot of people out of work um unemployed a lot of disabled people 
um, a lot of problems that have come about through you know the last 30 40 years um, as a result of the collapse of industry that capitalism has kind of been able to turn a tidy profit out of what you might call surplus populations you know and turn exactly. out of things like big big billionaire care industries and I guess like strategically I'm you know I'm you know reading your book and kind of like digesting a lot of these um these ideas and strategies I kind of wondered what you thought about that huge industry which is you know largely um has women working in it who are also doing the unwaged work at home like how you connect that kind of industry that massive profit making industry that's turning a profit in you know kind of unwaged work as well as as things have changed over the last sort of 40 years I kind of wondered whether you you saw you know a way for them to be politically linked or strategically well, linked well they are in a way in a way you they cannot be polit- uh, unlinked because they're the same people each of the women that you see you know working in the wards uh, you know the covid wards they go home to see after their children you know, they go out to uh, go home to deal with their auntie or their granny. They're doing a double day. All of them are, and I was really interested. They offered they offered one percent raise, and then because there was a howl, they offered three percent. You know, these people are. You know. They are just greedy unbelievably, pathologically, and I don't think the women in who are doing the waged work, the low-waged work, I don't think they're going to let them get away with that because I think that they've had it, they've risked their lives. We know that people of color are the, or a greater proportion of people of color have died serving the public helping the whole public to survive in the mm. hospitals and the link the the connection the the intimate connection mm. between the women who are doing the work outside and the women who are doing the work at home they are almost always the same people yeah. and they are getting a very low pay for that work outside because they get no pay for that same work inside. Yeah. Um, and I think that that idea and the connection between caring outside for, for strangers really and caring for your own family are deeply connected. I have to say that we've had a terrible uphill battle because feminism generally that is the the feminism which is presented to us in the media has been so hostile to money in women's hands i don't understand it don't ask me to explain i have no way of understanding you know clr james was asked what do you think of selma and the wages for housework campaign and he said you can't be against it and I said, that's the man I know and love. <laughs> you can't, but it was clever what he said. Men, I don't want to know all the ins and outs of the arguments. How can you be against 
working class women demanding money from the state. I do not understand it unless you're the state. Why are you defending the state? You need, do you need all the military hardware? Is that what you're defending? What is it you are defending when you are preventing mothers from having money to feed their children? Yeah. Which they have worked hard for. You I know, think, it's, yeah. it, it's something that bewilders me and I'm not the only one. That connection, I think, you know, I think you're right, that connection between those, the kind of industry of care work and the care work that happens at home and, and the reluctance to, of a lot of the feminist movement to lean into that is frustrating. And I think this pandemic has really shone a light on that in, mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, hasn't hasn't seemed possible in the past. And one of the things that's interesting is that actually there were whole industries that, that, that did close and no one cared or noticed. But if all of the women who were working in the care industry or at home completely stopped, that would have actually brought capital to a standstill. And so I, I guess, you know, I've kind of wondered whether, you know, whether or not those, you know, these might be the new strategic industries to be organising in these care industries with these millions and millions and millions of women who are employed um, making massive profits for these for these companies because actually if they did stop, then everything would stop. Well, they are talking about a stoppage, but it's a very hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. And mothers have found that it's very difficult also. You can't walk out on your children, but... In um, Northern in the Ireland, during the troubles in Northern Ireland, in the north of Ireland, um, women actually did join. They went on rent strike. That is, Catholic and Protestant housewives together. They didn't advertise it, and a lot of them took their children to the welfare and put their children, say, "You take care of her. I have no food." And they didn't have to go for long. They were able to be effective and they recommended to us in a film that we made that we follow the same policy here because they got some action as a result of that. It's very hard as a carer not to care. Mm, yeah. You can't turn your back on it. That's part of what traps us all the time. But if you are with other carers, there are ways in which you can act collectively across all the boundaries of race and nationality and immigration status and age and income and various divisions among us. We can act together and when we act together and we move on them, they're rather stuck. Yeah. You know, I really, it, it, it changes everything that you think and you think entirely of your own possibility for power and we need a taste of that power and I think in the next months we're going to see a lot of show of power beginning with women. It is pretty inevitable. They have taken everything from us including our time, our children, our housing, our benefits, our access to the NHS. You know, they've taken 
our child care, they've taken, they've taken the playing fields for the kids mm. to play, to play their football or whatever it is they want to do together. They've taken everything from us, and I think that we're likely to say we'd like it back. <laughs> I really hope that people do and have from the pandemic recognized their power because I think, you know, the ability for the first time in a generation to see the way in which our care work fundamentally keeps the system running. And without the key workers, without the bin men, without the bus drivers, without the delivery drivers, society, we didn't need the city to be open during the pandemic. We didn't need banking. We didn't need any of that. But we needed those fundamental key workers. And I hope that people from that experience see their power. You know, it's really impressive to hear that you're quite optimistic about the inevitability of that that, that struggle. Because I think a lot of us are like, oh, when will it come? We've only got time for one more question, I think. Do you want to yeah, yeah. ask the last one? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess kind of on that topic of I had no idea about that story that you mentioned in Ireland of the Protestant and Catholic mm. women coming together and that really speaks to I think a theme that as friends tied me and Avia together when we first like got to know each other which was the question of solidarity and I think all throughout your book it almost is like a timeline of different solidarities in some ways you've got the story of like the the prisoners who put aside their racial warfare and their differences and come together to like fight the carceral the carceral system that they're in. And then you've got the other story right after that of like the women on the outside showing solidarity with men in prisons on the inside. And then of course, obviously you're deeply inspired by um, CLR James seminal and obviously phenomenal work on Sandemang and the Haitian revolution. And what really like stood out for me reading your pieces was, the way in which when Africans were captured and kind of carted through the, the middle passage, the way in which they came together across lines of language and tribe and and that. And then finally, you brought us like right to the your work in the Wages for Housework campaign and the way in which like lesbians coming into the group and sex workers coming into the group and black women coming into the group fundamentally changed the politics and moved forward the campaign. And what I found really interesting was the fact that you connect solidarity with autonomy. So I wondered if you could like tell us and the audience about the difference between autonomy and separatism, for example, which is the charge that's often brought against marginalized people for organizing on our own and by ourselves and like how you see autonomy as connected to solidarity. That's a lot. (laughs) But um... I'll try to do it simply and quickly if I can. We talk, we talk about autonomy. We're first of all autonomous from the powers that be. And in order to be autonomous of the powers that be, we have to be autonomous from those sectors of the working class who act to us like some of the powers that be, but who have also their own case against capitalism. And that's true, first of all, between women and men, it's easy to see. They they control us. A lot of the time, they control us. And we have to be autonomous of men. But we have to know that they are also workers in struggle. 
and we have to find ways of working with them which do not impose their domination. The same thing is true on race. White people have a power over black people a lot of the time and advantages that belong to all of them. I don't believe in privileges. You know, being able to vote is not a privilege, it's a right. It's a right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so we just clear that up. But, but advantages is a real thing. But we need white people who are in struggle against the same people who are attacking us and whom we want to overthrow and undermine. And therefore, we make our case against the men who would dominate us, and we demand money so that they do not have the power to dominate us. We demand the wage that belongs to us whatever is our race, for example. And at the same time, we see what they are doing, which is useful to us, and we don't turn our back on it. To turn our back on the struggle of others who are struggling, not with you, but in a way that is useful to you, that is separatism. That is being you know, being pure for no reason but defeat. And the woman who said, you know, she was a black woman who said, you know, I don't want only women who look people who look like me. I want them to think like me and act like me. In other words, I do not turn down workers, other workers who have more power than I have I do not turn them down in the struggle that they are making. I want to use what they are doing for my own liberation. And for that, I must be supportive of what they are doing. I must work out how to use their power for my purpose. Yeah. I think one of the quotes that really, really struck me, and I think it was in the essay, The Wages of the World, where you said divisions exist in order to maintain the dominance of capitalism. And so overcoming those divisions is the destruction of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so what I find like quite interesting is there's certain types of politics, and I will name drop Afro-pessimism as, as an example of this, <laughs> um, which says that the struggles of other people are nothing to do with us. Uh, the fundamental division in society is between black people and white people and everyone black people are in an antagonism and, and, against and the entire world yeah and, and black people are, are in an antagonism against other people of color what's really interesting in terms of what 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 you're saying and what you said in that article is the way in which that ends up maintaining the status quo exactly because we are allowing these divisions to perpetuate. So we're just allowing capitalist power to continue its domination over us. And I think your work is like so, so relevant to our generation for that reason. Oh, I'm very glad to hear it. I was hoping that it was relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, timely, relevant, like, yeah. Yeah, really. absolutely. We can't thank you enough for this amazing, you know, set of text, that, like um, essays. It's honestly reading through it like the stuff that was from the past and all the, the the stuff from today as well you can just see this current running through it and even though things have changed a little bit 
since the 1970s, there's also an, a great deal in there that is still kind of the same. <laughs> so like, it's, yeah. you know, and it was, yeah, it was, it was an amazing, well, it's an amazing piece. Thank you so much for, for putting it all together. Oh, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for your thanks, but I have to say that the women in the campaign have always been the source of everything mm -hmm. that we say and do. What uh, Women of Color has done here, you know, in the, in, at this center, um, and uh, the work against deportation and the work against uh, racism, the racism of the police and the racism of private individuals. You know, the work that you all have done here has framed the work of the center mm -hmm. and every other organization which is here, Queer Strike, the English Collective of Prostitutes, you know, Win Visible, the organization of women with disabilities, single mother self-defense, every single organization, support not separation, each of them has framed the work of all of us. That's, our, that's what, how we have used autonomy. They are autonomous, but they are entirely uh, relevant and supportive of other work of other organizations. We are separate, but together. Yeah. Independent rather than separate. Independent, but together. And we feel that that can be extended. And the work for the environment that each of the organizations has done, has been involved in, uh, you all in Women of Color and the other organizations uh, and working for the Indian strike, you know, and the work with Haiti, all of it has enriched what mm. we do and how we do it and how much sustenance we get from what we do with others. Uh, the movement should be fun. <laughs> and it's the best fun is when you win. <laughs> and we try to win all the time. Amazing. Wow. And that <laughs> lovely note of- uh, Optimism is real for Optimism, <laughs> optimism winning yeah. and solidarity. The key message is untaken away from that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Selma and, and Sarah as well, um, and for having us at the beautiful Crossroads Women's Centre. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.